This is a conversation with Tina Stromstead. Hi, Tina. Hi, Serge. So you're a Jungian analyst and somebody who's passionate about authentic movement? Yes. I practice in a way that integrates many forms, as is probably true for many of for you, I know, and for many of our colleagues. So I am a Jungian analyst with a private practice here in San Francisco, where I work with individuals and also with groups. But because before I was a Jungian analyst, I was a dance therapist, I'm always including the way that the body is trying to contribute to the conversation and make the unconscious, the implicit, more explicit in the conversations that I have with the people that I'm working with. So um, the somatic and the psychological depth analytic work are very, they very much dance with each other. And authentic movement is a form of dance therapy, a form of somatics, and one that I've practiced for a long time personally, which has been very meaningful for me, and then eventually became something that I taught. Uh, we had an authentic movement institute in Berkeley, a colleague of mine and I, Neela Hayes, for many years. Um, I integrated into my analytic work, and I teach groups that involve that. I also have been studying with a woman named Marion Woodman, who's a Jungian analyst in Canada since the 1980s, and she has a form of work called body-soul rhythms. So I, I practice and teach that as well. So that's another another area. Yeah, yeah. so that's that integration um, mm-hmm. of uh, Jungian uh, analysis and movement dance and you mm-hmm. said that the uh, the movement helps make the implicit explicit mm-hmm. um, so do you want to maybe talk a little bit about that maybe give an example talk about something of how that happens yeah well as you can imagine many people come for therapy and some come knowing that I'm an analyst and very much wanting to work with their dreams and work with the unconscious and things that they um haven't really paid a lot of attention to in a lifestyle where they're working very much on their careers and building their families and things of this kind. And so the inner life tends to go a bit quiet. And there comes a time when it begins to press on them, whether it's through somatic symptoms of some kind or synchronicities that happen in their life that grab their attention finally or um, repeating difficulties in the nature of their relationships, it, it comes to find them, the inner life. And um, Joseph Campbell is somebody I studied with for many years when I was working with Stanley Kellerman since they worked together. And Stanley was bringing in the embodied aspect of the hero's journey, as he put it, and Joe, the mythological counterpart to the somatic formative journey. It was very exciting. And Joe once said, he talked about how we might spend our lives climbing the ladder of success, only to find out when we get to the top that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. (laughs) (laughs) So I always loved that. And so people who come may have already done quite a bit of psychotherapy, the verbal kind, or maybe not, so they can express themselves quite articulately but um, they're kind of skiing on top of what's underneath 
that the body has been holding mm. until the psyche is strong enough to begin to become more conscious of it and to allow it expression. So this is where, for example, Wilhelm Reich's work came in with the body armoring, holding unconscious impulses and conflicts and things like that in the body until there was a safe enough relationship, temenos, as the Jungians would say, the sacred container, for the person to begin to thaw enough to allow those impulses, feelings, conflicts, memories of various kinds, traumas, we could say, to begin to um, unfold in the room, to, yeah. to, to be warmed enough, to feel safe enough to share. So, um, and other people come in very much wanting to do movement and embodied work with me. Um, so some people come in hoping to talk a lot, and when I let them know or remind them that I'm also a somatics practitioner and dance therapist, they might look a little frightened or they might look a little interested. And then I always say, we'll go at your own pace and I'll always share with you some impressions I have about ways that we might be able to begin to invite the body to enter into our exchange. And then you can see how that feels to you, if that's something you'd like to pursue. Um, so, well, for example, at the moment, I'm thinking about a man I worked with many years ago. I'll just call him Daniel, who was a lawyer and mm-hmm. came in, in a business suit, very put together, very depressed. And um, he was part of a law firm where his father had worked. His grandfather had started it. So it was a lineage of, of men in this work. And he felt very trapped in it. And he just said to me, it's really not my nature. Yeah. And I asked him how he got involved in it, and it was a question of not disappointing his father and his grandfather and so forth. Um, and he'd married and he had children. Um, he had three children. So he, when I said, well, what would it be like to consider finding another way of work that would be closer to your soul, to your own nature? He, he just paled and said, I, I can't. Um, I can't let my family down, my father down, and I can't give up this kind of cash flow in terms of being able to support my family and eventually get them into college and that kind of thing. So this went on for a while, and at some point I noticed he was saying, well, on the one hand, this, I need to stay there, um, it's important that I keep this profession, I need the money and so forth. <clears throat> on the other hand, I feel trapped I feel depressed. I'm starting to drink. Um, I, I don't know how to get out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and as he was on the one hand, I have to stay. I noticed that his face, um, looked a bit white and that there was a very quieting impact on his body. And I stopped breathing. Um, there was a deadness in the room. And then he said, and on the other hand, um, and I asked him what gave him pleasure. And he said, well, sculpting, working with wood and stone, building things. And he started to smile, and the color started coming into his face, and I started to breathe again. Right. So I want to just slow down a bit. Yeah. That, um, you know, what you're describing 
is something where you're picking up the two sides. Uh, you're noticing what happens to him. You're also experiencing it yourself. So, exactly. um, you know, there's that, uh, that, that whole body experience, uh, mm-hmm. is very much in the room and is, and you're resonating with it. Absolutely. And he wasn't really aware at that point mm-hmm. of what his body was doing. So here we have this exquisite thing that happens all the time that we sometimes don't notice, body metaphors. Mm-hmm. How metaphors in our language often include body wisdom. So a common expression like on the one hand and on the other often carries the conflict. You know, or I feel torn in two directions. Mm-hmm. Um, or I feel saddled with this, you know, or I, you know, any of those kinds of things. As um, you're, as you're talking about it, I see I have in my mind the picture of the god Janus with the oh, two faces. And yes. uh, as you do on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, I have this vision of the whole body being oriented in one direction and yes. then the other whole direction and the two parts that don't talk to each other that, well said. So I think the work is so often helping parts of the self get introduced to each other and mm-hmm. get to know each other better and in a somatic way to help people begin to feel the reality of one shape, let's say, as Stanley Kellerman might say, the shape of that experience and how then the body speaks its mind and gives rise to specific ideas and ways of identifying oneself and belief systems and all kinds of things that are contained in that embodied stance and configuration. And that if there's a way to become more conscious of that, to amplify it a bit so you you make that shape a bit more consciously, and then let it begin to breathe more and soften a bit more and wait in the transition, and then, if you wish, gradually move into the shape of the other um, finding a movement pathway between the two shapes. Mm. Because the body, psyche, soul, let's say, knows them both, but they don't necessarily know how to make natural contact. They, they kind of spring out in different environments or in different relationship situations and so forth. So here's the person, in this case Daniel, the lawyer, in a safe space, beginning to discover each of those two bodies, those two states of being. And Jung would say that individuation or the process of becoming more oneself or living one's true path is about the process of being able to hold tension between the opposites, to experience each of them without splitting off and finding a, a third way that is beyond what only the two parts contain. Something new, a new life disposition. So um, in this case, when I asked what he might consider doing, what gave him pleasure, he completely brightened when he talked about working with his hands and working creatively. But then he, his face sort of dropped again and he said, but, but I can't make money doing that. I can't support my family and so on. So I said, well, before we get into the practicalities, let's just see if you could live that part a bit more. Mm-hmm. So 
he remained in the chair because for him getting up and moving about would be very self-conscious and awkward. So I never pressed people to, to begin there at all. Um, so in the chair, um, you know, people tend to oscillate back to the familiar. So there's a moment of brightness, of vitality, fuller breath. I feel more alive myself in my chair. My somatic countertransference is about liveliness and interest and curiosity um, when he speaks about what gives him pleasure and this deadening, on the other hand. So he goes back to the deadening, all the reasons why he can't live a more creative life. And then I notice that he has his legs crossed and that one of his feet is flipping back and forth. You know how we sometimes do that. The foot is juggling at the end of the leg, and he's not aware of it. And so I asked, you know, is it... Um, as I mentioned to you, Daniel, the body is often trying to express things that we don't know yet. What might it be like if we included what your body might have to contribute to this conversation? Would that be okay with you? And so, so without, I without specifically, to the... without specifically alerting him to the foot movement at that time, it's more of a general permission to include the exactly. body. Exactly. Yeah. Can we get closer to your unconscious through your bodily expression? So it's like making a contract, because if I just go to the foot, my experience when I was a younger person, <laughs> and I would get curious and point it out as people would freeze and stop. Oh, I'm doing something down there that I'm not aware of, and they didn't like that, that that someone else was noticing their unconscious. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of a natural, shy thing. So, so now with someone who's very new to working in an embodied way, I get, I educate a little bit and then I get permission and he kind of nodded he looked a little shy and he smiled and he said oh well okay sure and so I said well I'm I'm noticing that your foot is joggling a bit it's wiggling were you aware of that and he looked down and he said well no not exactly and um but he kept it he stopped it and then he kept it going a little bit and um I said well I wonder if it would be okay if I do that with you and he looked a little shy, and he smiled, and he said, okay. So then I did it with him, so then he could see his movement witnessed and reflected on the outside, which gave him more awareness of what he was doing and allowed some of his feelings about it to come up. And so we did it together a bit, and I said, well, I wonder if we could experiment with what your foot might be trying to say. So let's make it a little bit smaller. So we made it a little smaller. Well, let's make it a little bit bigger. And I'm using my voice, too, I think kind of playfully and supportively. And um, so there is an atmosphere of play. And and the relationship at that moment is one of being very much with him, and uh, both of you are in an experimental mode. So it's the exact opposite of, say, the critical observer witnessing or intruding on the unconscious, but this kind of a gentle inquiry and playfulness for both of you. Yes, thank you. That's so essential in the atmosphere. And I'm very relational and very process-oriented because one never knows how 
how the spirit is going to enter the room and find expression through the body and through speech and the musicality of speech, the imagery of speech, or through dream images that get or memories that bubble up, as you know. So, so in this case, we're making it a little bit bigger. And then I say, wow, let's add the breath. Because that then brings in the affect. Because as you know, if you're holding your breath, you're holding in your feelings. So then you just have motor movement without the affect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then he starts, so then he starts to, whoosh, the leg really starts to go and so does mine. And there's a kind of a whoop, <laughs> almost the way a father would bounce a child on his knee, you know, mm-hmm. whoop, like that. And then I said, let's make it a little softer. Let's make it a little stronger. So I'm using, I'm recruiting all the elements of dance mm-hmm. in this. Tempo, weight, direction, um, the amount of energy that goes into it. So whoosh, he does it big and I say, maybe there's a sound. Would that be okay? Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, at first it's a little quiet and then, oh, it gets stronger. So I'm doing it with him. So I'm mirroring his speech then. So now we have not the reasonable, um, explicit, rational lawyer's vernacular. We have a kind of speech that's more embodied, that's more sound, that's closer to feeling, emotion, and that's more playful. It's unformed. Um, so it goes beneath the cognitive radar, if you will, where yep. the critic tends to live, as you point out. So then we're doing it, and... Um, at a certain point, somehow I had the feeling that maybe we could begin to add words. Um, but I know that I might need to back off if it goes too quickly because he'll go into his head. But he's able to say, stop, get out of here, you know, Ugh! like this. And mm-hmm. so his assertion and his aggression and his upset feelings begin to emerge from underneath the weight of the depression. So when he's saying the stop, get out of here... Uh, mm-hmm. Is it in response to something specific, or is it just in a sense of following the uh, uh, the, the arc of the movement itself? And uh, yeah. yes, good question. Following the arc of the movement. So at first, he didn't know what he was responding to. He was mm-hmm. just connecting with a stream of emotion that was that was pregnant in the movement, and. Um, And then he got in touch with his boss, with his father, his grandfather. All of this material began to come up. The things that were forbidden to be said, right. which was his way. So so all of this is happening as you are in the movement and exploring the movement and the sound, as opposed to uh, materializing uh, or talking about the boss and the environment itself. Uh, these are his long-held reactions that exactly. find in that situation encouragement for coming out. Exactly. And some of them were, over time, much more powerful than he realized. And that's what the depression had been about. It was a, it was a kind of forbidding of these feelings because it created too much conflict for him to carry them consciously. Um, and there was also, in a way, the good son, you know. So it meant bringing in more of his shadow, which had more aggression, assertion, more of his own voice, um, the part of him that could um, object and um, push back and have his own standpoint, his own voice, his own perspective. 
um, that had not been as encouraged or developed. So there was a whole reservoir, and there's the shadow, if you will, of unexpressed feelings, repressed memories, parts of himself that were underdeveloped and that his highly developed ego in this rational sense was much less aware of. Yeah. And when it would start to come up, he would push it down, get depressed, or start to drink, or get into a conflict with his wife, or be, or sort of hamper his children when they were playing and telling them to be quiet and kind of instilling the deadening in the atmosphere that he had, he was experiencing in himself. So his whole family was a little unhappy, as you can yes. imagine. <laughs> uh, the, the, when you talk about the shadow, um, there's something very beautiful in the way you're describing the session, uh, mm-hmm. that actually it was not just um, a theoretical permission for the shadow to come up, but as you are mirroring him and to some extent preceding him, uh, mm-hmm. there is a very real um, visual, uh, emotional encouragement, uh, permission to be in it. Yes. Yes, I think if we as therapists are willing to go to these expressive emotional places, there's a modeling, not taking it over, not pushing people, not, but in a way picking up on what's already present in the room and underscoring it in some way through the mirroring, the witnessing, bringing it more forward in consciousness in the room for the person and between us. And then seeing what direction it might want to go in, and with what amplitude, how much energy is just the right amount at that time. In the old days at Esalen, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I taught there a lot in the 90s and, you know, into the 2000s. And I remember in the beginning, you know, just after Fritz Perls had been there a lot, there was a lot of primal scream work and a lot of emphasis on smashing pillows, you mm-hmm. know. And I think we all got really good at being <laughs> angry and got really, we became really expert screamers, you know, and things like this. But I think now we know in the field of, of somatics and body-oriented work that it needs to be integrated and it needs to be titrated, you know, mm-hmm. um, so that um, you don't get to be just really good at expressing Right. Shadow things, but then that you put them in your pocket, you don't know what to do with them. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I want to come back to just what you were saying a few moments before that, when you were describing the session, and yeah. um, I was struck by how your vocabulary uh, had very much um, the sense of observing movement. You said you're talking about observing direction, amplitude, and uh, mm-hmm. and so it struck me that in a way what you were describing is an integration of the authentic movement, you know, being a witness mm-hmm. um, into the context of, say, the Jungian therapy. Mm-hmm. That there is a part about uh, being attuned to that implicit yes. movement, of yes. being able to pick up a little bit and amplify it, so mm-hmm. that the client could, you know, then have permission to go there, but that in a way I had that almost visual sense of, um, you know, that witnessing and amplifying the movement um, yes. as you were talking about that session. Yes. Those are very important elements, and as you're saying, an aspect, too, of the witness is, I think, very much aligned with what you do in focusing um, 
continuing to refine our own sense of our embodied sensations. So I'm being guided by what's happening with my own breathing, tingling in various parts of my body, areas that that get a little more deadened, areas that begin to feel a kind of vitality, uh, itchy things that start to happen, my heart beginning to melt, um, different images that arise, how my languaging is begins to get impacted by the sensations I'm feeling in my body. There's a kind of poetic speech, I think, that we mm-hmm. begin to use as therapists that includes the body. It's not just abstract, rational language. It speaks directly to the body, you know, yeah. um, through, through the imagery. So maybe just to finish very briefly with Daniel, what that led to over time. Um, he's so present for me now as we talk about <laughs> I was just so touched by his work. Um, and it did happen over time because I didn't want to rush him at all. And it never works and it doesn't feel good, you know, for either person. So, but what unfolded over time was as the foot kept going, gradually there wasn't enough room to stay in the chair. And so at a certain moment I said, how would you like to get up so you have a little more space? What if we stand together? And over a few sessions... Um, he ended up standing, and I worked with him around grounding, having his own standpoint, feeling his weight in one leg and moving through the center into the other leg, breath, um, jiggling into his heels, all the kinds of things we know how to do in the embodied work. So he felt more connected to himself and more deeply supported by the earth and not just by a cultural image of what a man is supposed to be or a lawyer is supposed to be, something much deeper a deeper source, a deeper resource, a deeper support. Jung would call that a more archetypal ground, mm-hmm. uh, drawing from uh, something deeper than your personal history, you know, um, or physical tensions in the moment, a, a quiet, firmer place in the self that can allow for more to be there and arise than what the constrictions allow for so there he was so i said well could we try that swinging that your leg knows how to do while we're here standing so to make a long story short or short story long we (laughs) we both did that and then we did it with both feet and at a certain point because he had been dancing with his wife at some point dancing was sort of okay culturally people do it i said well would you like a little music and i asked him what kind i have lots of music in my analytic office there and so I put on some African music that had a good solid beat and he ended up you know, bringing his heels into the floor and finding a natural rhythm that brought a lot more of the blood rhythms the heart rhythms, the breath rhythms in and I was mirroring those rhythms and he started to smile widely and I just felt like this was a different person in front of me who was of course him and then he laughed and then he looked a little shy, and then he looked very happy, and then he looked very strong, and he looked more sensual, and he looked just more full of joy, you know. And so over time, he began to, his wife said, well, what's happening to you? You're, you're starting to change, and what's going on in there? And you know, so, and, um, and he said, well, we're starting to do movement stuff, and there was some music, and and gradually, gradually, 
also in conversation with his wife, he shifted his career and began to study architecture and to work on building and to do sculpture on the weekends. And it made him very happy. And he was so worried about the finances and his wife and his children. But he was much happier around them, so his kids started to play with him. And his wife said, this is the man that I married. Mm. I thought that I'd lost you. Mm. So it was very moving, very moving for me mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, yeah. So there's a kind of an example. Yeah, it is very moving. It is very moving. He, he found his right path, I think. Mm-hmm. His his vocation and a way of living in the world with his work and his family life and his profound creativity that mm-hmm. was more expressive of his true nature, his own soul. Yeah. So there's a part of me that, you know, wants to find more words to qualify what is moving, but I'm actually resisting it. And just, uh, maybe just to express that there was something very moving about, um, that. And, um, and maybe just, just to leave it at that. Mm-hmm. There's a, a marvelous there's a marvelous quote, actually, by Mary Starks Whitehouse, who's the grandmother of authentic movement. Mm-hmm. She says, movement, to be experienced, has to be found in the body, not put on like a dress or a mm-hmm. coat. There is that in us which has moved from the very beginning. It is that which can liberate us. Mm. It feels like a beautiful place to end this conversation. Okay. Thank you so much, Serge. Thanks, Tina. It's been a real pleasure. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com. There's a, a marvelous... There's a marvelous quote, actually, by Mary Starks Whitehouse, who's the grandmother of authentic movement. Mm -hmm. She says, movement, to be experienced, has to be found in the body, not put on like a dress or a Mm -hmm. coat. There is that in us which has moved from the very beginning. It is that which can liberate us. <laughs> it feels like a beautiful place to end this conversation. Okay. Thank you so much, Serge. Thanks, Tina. It's been a real pleasure. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.